Welcome to an amazingly special Open Bros. I'm Eric. Michael, you there? And I'm Michael. Yeah, continue. <laughs> and uh, we have a legendary guest. We have a legendary guest, Mr. Scott Salombrino. Hi, boys. Thanks for coming, Scott. This is this is fantastic. I am so thrilled to be with you. I've known you guys since you were kids, uh, yes. and I'm very proud of you. I've been following all your stuff. I follow your career. Uh, you know I was friends with your parents, um, and certainly Phyllis and I had a long relationship together, your mom. Um, she supported everything I would do with those crazy government regulators. Every fight, she always sent a check, always trying to be helpful. And I really have a lot of respect because she's been through the world and she understands the world. So I'm really happy she's become a world-renowned successful author. So she has a fan in me. I like her stuff on Amazon all the time. Uh, to get her ratings up. She doesn't need my ratings. She already has them. So congratulations to your mother, Phyllis, who I think is phenomenal. You know, it's Thank definitely you. no accident when she, you know, she strikes lightning twice. And, uh, you know, same thing with you. You know, when, when you're able to have, when you're able to do multiple things and, and be at the top of your game with no matter what that you do, you know, you're, you know, you know, you're special. And, um, you know, no doubt about that with you, Scott, as well. Look, life is, uh, is only a short amount of time on the planet, as you know, and you should try to do everything you can do to enjoy and take advantage of every second that you're here. So I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in that, you know, live life. Absolutely. So what I wanted to ask you is, I know you're like a renowned road warrior. How mm -hmm. is life behind that green, in front of that green wall? I got to tell you, I was on the road late. I was on the road so late. Uh, into, into March that the board of directors at GBTA finally literally had to ground me. And they said, listen, you're not a kid. You're going to get sick on the road. We can't right. afford that. And we don't want you quarantining in Washington because I have a TV studio in Washington. People don't realize that. GBTA has its own TV studio. So I said, wow, wow I'll quarantine in Washington. And I'll just live in the TV studio and communicate to the world. They said, yeah, that would be no. Go to Boston with your wife and dog and kids and goodbye. So I came back to Boston on March 12th was the last flight I took. I had been in Europe uh, two weeks prior to that as this stuff was just kicking in. And I guess that when you've been through the road as much as I have, you think you're immune to everything because I've been all over the world for my whole career. I mean, I, I would travel about 240, 250 days a year consistently for years. And I just thought I could get away with it. But I, I'm, you know, as you get older, you kind of have to rethink. And they basically said, no, you're not doing that. So I came home. And then I had to pick the, a room with the special lighting. It was all about lighting. So my tech team would go from room to room and they would test the lighting during the day. And they said, your dining room is the best place to do this. So set up in your dining room and don't leave anything alone. Just stay there and that's where you'll be. And that's where I've been for a month, you know, talking to in my forum, all the CEOs in the travel industry. I mean, I have another 25 interviews that will come up in the next three weeks. They just keep coming. It's really crazy. It's amazing. But it's hard. I miss the road. You know, I, I really miss being on the road. I'm a guy that likes to travel. Um, I still talk to all my friends at my airline in Boston. Because I grew up near the airport, all the people that run the airlines in Boston are high school friends of mine. And I was the president of my high school class. So I know everybody. And so everybody takes yeah, care of it. Where, that's where I want to start this. Like, I want to know your journey. I mean, you are, you're a fascinating guy. You're the face of 
you know, the ground travel industry, and now you're the face of the travel industry. So I want to know as, you know, how did Uncle Scott start? Did you always want to be a businessman? Did you always want to be in travel? Take us to the very beginning and, and, and tell us, you know, take us to your journey. I want to hear. So, I mean, look, it's a, it's a simple story. I was a kid who grew up in a very blue collar neighborhood in a place called Revere, which is right next to Logan Airport, the equivalent of Queens, New York. That's what I would equate it to. Um, and it was Italian, Irish, a little bit of Jewish in the mix. That was it. Uh, very close knit neighborhoods. People got along. And I went, I had an opportunity to go to Catholic high school. My brother went, I didn't want to go because it was an all boys school. I said to my parents, I'm not going to an all boys school. No way. I'm going to public high school. Went to public high school, uh, was really popular, became the president of multiple classes and became my senior class president. Um, I got accepted to Harvard only because Harvard University had a deal with the city of Revere that they got one guaranteed acceptance a year and, and all the teachers voted it had to be me. The problem was in those days in 1978 is there wasn't scholarship money like there is today. That was the year I was born, by the way. Okay. Well, there you go, right? So in 1978, there was no scholarship money. It wasn't the same. So the tuition in 78 was like 50000 all in. My father was a, a middle-class middle class manager in a printing company his whole career. And I'm not sure he made $50,000. So that wasn't going to work. So I actually convinced him to give it to my class valedictorian, uh, who then went on to become a world-renowned um, pediatrician in New York. And every five years, I still do the class reunions, she gives the same speech for five years, for 50 years now. She says, I went to Harvard because of Scott Solombrino, and I will never forget that. Everybody rolls their eyes and says, Laureen, we've heard this story our whole lives. Can you move on to something else? And she thanks me and thanks me and thanks me. So then my next option was Boston College. My parents were pretty hooked up in the archdiocese. I went to Boston College and interviewed. And at the end of the interview, I, Father Monin said, we're going to love having you here at Boston College. I'm a big Catholic, right? I said, Father, Father. He said, yes. I said, can I get an exemption? There's an exemption for what? I said, well, I have to work as a freshman. I can't live on campus. So I'm going to commute. He said, you can't commute to Boston College and you can't work. That's forbidden. Nobody works in their friend. And he went crazy. And I said, well, I guess I'm not coming, Father. He goes, what do you mean you're not coming? You've been accepted. I said, yeah, I'm not coming. Went home. My mother cried. My father was mortified. And I said, I can't do that. I can't, I can't live. So I went to Suffolk University, which at the time was a commuter school, um, which became the number one law school in New England, which is really a funny story as to where that, that place ended up. And in my freshman year, I had about six or $700 left in the bank. And I saw an ad from a guy who the family knew who was in the funeral business selling an old used 1969 Cadillac limo. I went and bought the limo for 600 bucks and I hired a former Teamster truck driver named Chick Provenzano and I made a deal. I said, I'll get the jobs in the day. You drive the day jobs, I'll drive the night jobs because I have to be in school and I'll study at night when I'm in the car. So he kept saying, well, where are you gonna get the job? And I said, I'll get the jobs. I went to every funeral home, every wedding hall, and everybody was so amazed. They were like, this kid's crazy. We'll give him a job. And every day, the phone would ring. Get a job. So then I bought a second car, a third car. I get to the end of my senior year. I have 30 cars, doing about $4 million a year. Had never spent a nickel living at home. I had, I had all the money buried in my backyard. Cash everywhere. I had a bank account. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, okay, I got accepted to law school. I'm going to go to be a lawyer. So I met with my accountant and lawyer. And they said, are you crazy? 
you should run this business for a while. I said, yeah. okay, I'll make a deal. I'm going to run it for one year, only one year. So I got 30 cars all over our neighborhood. It's in a little dead end street. There's cars lined up. The neighbors, I give them all free rides, give them money. Nobody complains except for one neighbor across the street. They drove me crazy. They would call the police every three days. And the chief would call me on the telephone and say, we're coming up. And I'd hang up the phone and move all the cars. The police would come and they'd go across the street and say, stop making false police reports. And the cops would wink and say, my daughter's having a prom. I take care of the daughter's prom. I mean, it was a joke in the neighborhood. People really loved me. So eventually I had to get a building. And then I came to New York and heard about David Klein, who at the time was the biggest limo guy in history. Yep. And I got on the Eastern shuttle, flew to New York, booked a Dave L driver. His name was Sid Heimbender. Never forget it as long as I live. They had a, a building on 72nd Street and they had elevators to take these stretch limousines up and down. It was like, it was crazy. So I said, Sid, I got to go see David Klein. He goes, do you have an appointment? I said, no. He goes, I can't help you. He goes, you can't go there. I said, what do you mean I can't go there? He goes, you're not going to get in the building. I'm not doing it. So I take out a $100 bill. And that time, $100 was real, was a real money. I said, Sid, get me as close as you can get me. He grabs the 100 and says, I never did this, but I'll be waiting for you three blocks over. If I ever get caught, I'm going to have a problem. So he tells me what to do. He goes, there's a side door, and it says driver entrance. Go in that entrance. There's no security. Go up to the third floor, and then look through the glass on the door, and Klein's office is right there, but I'm not sure you're going to get from the door to his office. I said, all right. I think I'm dealing with hoodlums. I don't know what the problem is. What do I know? But I'm determined to see the guy because he's the limo guy. I get up to the third floor. I get in the door. I'm making a beeline. It says David Klein. And all of a sudden, there's an arm that comes on my shoulder. And it's his secretary, Ellen Gomez. She said, who the hell are you and where you think you're going? And so all of a sudden, Klein hears this commotion, comes out of the office and says, Alan, what are you doing to that poor boy? What's, what's wrong with you? He said, who are you? And I told him that I owned a limo company in Boston. He goes, I know who your company is. Come and sit down with me and my controller. What was and the name the rest, of company then? What was the name of your name, company? My, my company was called, and you're going to ask me why, Fifth Avenue Limousine Service of Boston. Now, why did I name it Fifth Avenue Limousine Service? Because all the fools in New York who came off the Eastern Shuttle thought it was a New York company. They would all call. They'd say, we want to use the New York company. Forget those Boston people. And Klein was crying as I was explaining it to him, right? And we were doing real business. He has a relationship in Boston. He fires them immediately and hires me. Wow. Three days later, Klein calls me on the telephone and he says to me, Michael Eisner, who's the president of Paramount Pictures at the time, not Disney yet, and Neil Diamond are on a TWA flight to Paris that has a major mechanical and they're going to be landing in Boston. They don't know you're going to pick them up. You've got to pick them up, get them rooms at the Ritz-Carlton, take them to dinner at Lockovers, and then bring them back in the morning. So I said, well, who's Michael Eisner? He's like, don't even ask. Just don't screw this up. I have no clue on who Michael Eisner is. So I put my hat on. I go to the airport myself. I pick up him and Neil Diamond. I knew Neil Diamond, you know, song, song, blue. You know, I was like, boy, it's Neil Diamond. Boy, this is nice. I get him in the car. I give him a tour. The two of them are laughing. They said, Scotty, where did you come from? I said, oh, I work, I work with David Klein from Dave Bell. And, and Michael's like, of course you do. And so like I get him, the room's at the Ritz. I take him to dinner. Next day, I put him back on the plane. Now, in those days, you know what a telex was? A telex was a machine that in the travel business, you would type messages on, and then it would send and print out in your office. 
So the only way you would communicate was you'd send a telex from London or Paris, and then it would come up in somebody's office and go, and the message would be on there. Right, okay. So they end up in Paris. Day later, I, Klein calls me, and he says, I have a telex from Michael Eisner and Neil Diamond. I said, like, what's a telex? I had no idea. He goes, it's a message. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get fired. I've only been here a week. David, we don't know where you found this kid, Scotty, but if everybody in your company was as good as him, you'd have a much better company. He's fantastic. We're only ever going to recommend him. Thank you for everything. Wow. Klein's like, what did you do to them? I said, well, I said I did a tour. I took them to locker rooms. I took them here. I took them there. He's like, unbelievable. And from that day on, I got every piece of business in Boston. And then I got all the big companies in Boston, like Fidelity and Putnam, to then use Klein in his cities. Because I figured out I could make money on the other end. So this is 1978. This is like the beginning of networking in chauffeur car mm -hmm. and did very, very well. And uh, eventually in 1983, I get a message from Klein. You got to come see me. That's in the year Eric was born. That's the year Eric. Yeah, 83. 78 and 83. Yeah, I'm 23 years old. Klein hey. makes me get on an Eastern Airlines flight to Florida, to Miami. I hadn't heard from him in about six months, which is odd. We're doing business every day, getting paid, doing business. But I hadn't heard from David. I get to Florida. I go see him. He's in this unbelievable penthouse overlooking the ocean. And he said, I have to tell you something. And I said, what? He said, I'm dying. I said, what do you mean you're dying? I said, you're dying of what? He said, it's a long story, but I have a gay cancer. I said, well, what's gay cancer? Is there gay and straight cancer? He goes, it's a disease called AIDS. It's brand new. No one knows anything about it. I'm taking experimental drugs that are being snuck into the country from Japan and from Israel trying to live. But I know my fate is set. And I'm like, I'm literally crying. I'm literally like, David, you're my mentor. What do you mean you're dying? I was like stunned. It just me and him. In his, in his penthouse. He said, I have you here for a reason. He goes, American Express wants to buy the company and make it a division of Platinum Card. They're my biggest client. And I don't want to sell it to them. I said, well, why don't you want to sell it to them? He goes, they're going to change the name. And my only legacy I'm going to leave behind is the Dayvel brand. Yeah. I'm going to sell you the company. You have your, your communion money under your bed. You're going to figure this out and I'm going to figure it out with you you're going to buy the company with one stipulation. I said, what's the stipulation? You can never change the name. I'm like, David, I don't think I can do this. He goes, you'll be fine. He right. hands me a package of financial statements in a box. I literally turn around, get on a plane, fly back to Boston, go meet with my accountants, and I go to my bankers at Bay Bank at the time. And I, I was very well known in Bay Bank because I drove them all. And I walked in and I essentially said, I want to do this deal. Um, and they said, Great. I'm like, what do you mean great? They said, you kidding me? They said, you're like gold. We'll bet on you. Do the deal. I brought in a partner temporarily, a good friend of mine who's still a friend of mine to this day. He came in for about two years and then I, I, I bought him out and Klein passed away and the rest is history. I took over what was at the time one of the biggest chauffeur car companies in the world and survived and I got sued and there was unions and it was a very complex bunch of years. But I was young and energetic, and I got to meet all the customers, and the rest is history. And I just had a phenomenal life and career, um, you know, not without its problems. But, you know, and that's when I met your parents, um, you know, and got, I had friends everywhere in the business because I was always advocating for the business. I was never always about me. It was about the industry. How do we, you know, make more money, have less regulation, less taxes? Everybody was always chasing us around in chauffeur car. 
And then I, I did a deal um, to sell the company because the timing was right. It was after the financial crisis had passed. And this offer that I couldn't refuse came, down, came on to me out of the clear blue from people I did not know. And they were very successful. And they said, look, you want to do a deal. They said, right on a plea, on a, we, we were in a meeting in a little ballroom at a, at a Marriott hotel. I'll never forget it. They were just happy I was going to go to the meeting. And there was a little table in the middle of this ballroom. There's no one else in the ballroom and three guys and me. And I thought it was like a candid camera. You might not know what candid camera was, but they'd take pictures and then surprise people and say, it's candid camera. It happened in the 60s. So I said, this is kind of got to be a joke. This can't be serious. So they push a pad across the table and said, write down what it would take to do a deal. So what do you mean? They said, just tell us what you think it would take. So I write all these things down. We were there for hours. And they eventually tell their accounting guy to shut up because he was kind of a pain in the ass. And the two brothers basically talked me through and said, we got a deal. Amazing. So what does that mean? They, and they said, and we're going away for the holidays. It was in December. They said, we're going on vacation. So you figure it all out. And when we come back, we'll do this deal. I'm like, what do you mean you're going on vacation? They said, I'm going to Florida. I'm going to Hawaii for the holidays. Got to go. I'm like, okay. So I worked it all out. And we ended up doing the transaction in 2014. Amazing. And they That's signed a deal for me to stay on for as long as I wanted. It was a five-year deal with a five-year renewal. They gave me carte blanche. When I tell you no interference, zero. They said, do whatever you think is best. We trust you implicitly. You're the most honest guy. Everybody knows you. We love you. Do what you have to do. And so for five years, I ran the company. My two sons stayed. So they were in sales, doing very well. Um, and everything was great. When the end of the five years came, I had an option. I never thought I'd even think about the option that I want to stay on. And Shofar Car had gotten much more difficult. The Uber thing, the Lyft thing, I mean, God bless them. You know, now they're a part of the transportation system, and I get that. But it was really tough in those years when they first started. And I was just a bit tired of it all. I had already been to the top of the mountain in Shofar Car, did everything you could possibly do. And I was like, you know what? There's got to be something else for me to kind of finish my career with. I said, I think I'm going to take some time off. And they were very disturbed. They couldn't believe it. They're like, you can't leave. I said, I said, I'm going to leave. And so I left. And um, in two weeks, I had six CEO job offers from different industries because every venture capital company was looking for CEOs called me because I'd never been on the market before. Overwhelmed with requests because I drove all the VC companies. I knew them all the partners. And it was like, run this, run that. I mean, huge companies that were going to try to take public. And I'm like, I've never run a public company in my life. I'm not qualified. And I didn't want to do those deals. But I was still on the board of GBTA. And my term hadn't expired. And they basically said, we want you to take over. I said, you can't. I'm the guy that does the search for the people. I'm not taking over. I'm going to search for a new guy. If you want a new guy? They're like, no, you are the guy. And the rest is history. We did a deal in about 10 minutes. And I took over a year ago, May 1st, which is it's my one-year anniversary this week. Unbelievable. Scott, I have a question. Is the L in Davel Mitchell, the end of Mitchell? That's what my parents used to say. It was no. David and Mitchell? No? No. No. Um, David Klein started at the New Rochelle Country Club in 1966 with a partner named Elias. And they ran a valet service. And on okay. Saturdays, they had a Volkswagen. They would drive club members to Kennedy Airport for 50 bucks. Right. I don't know what they did with the golf clubs and the Volkswagen. I never really got that answer. They right. probably tied them on the top. I don't know what they did. But that's how they started. It became Dave L. Elliot quit, and David oh. didn't want to change the name. Now, people thought it was Israeli. You have no idea. I always did the Saudi embassy for decades, 
and they would say, we like dealing with the nice Israeli company. Say, I'm not Israeli. I'm what are you crazy? I'm not even Jewish. I'm Italian. And they would laugh. You know, the Saudis are crazy. And we would we we had these all these relationships. And so, but if you went to the, we also did the Metropolitan Opera in New York for decades. They would always say, and we are so blessed for Davel being our chauffeur car company. So they would call it Davel. I'd call it Davel. David Klein, you know, would say, you know. Just call it something. Like I would laugh and say, what's the real pronunciation? He goes, depends who you talk to. And right. so the name stuck. And then I never changed the name. And when I did the deal and I merged with the Boston Coach guys, it had to be Davel Boston Coach. Right. And that's the name to this day. I'll never forget my dad always used to tell me stories back when he was driving in the city and he'd be at Tavern on the Green and he would have one person coming out from dinner. And then he's like, and he's like, I would see 30 Daybell cars parked. Yep. At tavern on the green and he's like what what are they doing and yeah uh, it, it is incredible David Klein motivated him to become BLS yep you know I mean David was a phenomenal mentor to me yeah. and he, he, he just said he goes you're one of these people that just comes along he goes you got everything when he put me on the board of directors before he got sick Robin Leach and the Rudin brothers and all these guys were on the board they're like who is this kid and you know David's like he's the future and that's what he said. And the rest is history. Now, I never thought I'd buy the company, um, but I did. And, and you know what? And, and God bless Klein for pushing me and believing in me. And um, so the joke of this whole thing is his entire estate went to the Villa Viscaya Orchid Gardens in Miami, Florida. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. They became the beneficiaries of his whole estate. Oh, my God. Um, and so... I have never seen the orchid garden that was built with all my money. And every time I'm in Miami, I always forget to go, but I have to make an effort to go. It's been a long time because I really want to see what they did with the money. Pretty interesting though. That's he funny. donated all the money. And oh, there's another one. There's one more great story that you're going to die. Yeah. So I take over Darvell and I'm getting pounded every day, all kinds of problems. I'm there like a year. And every day I get these, and these people calling me, soliciting me. Everybody knew there was a new guy. Everybody wanted to sell you something. And this one guy would call from the Vermont Life Insurance Company, and he'd always, I'd say, listen, I'm not in the market for insurance, and I'd like hang up on him, you know, because the old days just telephones. This went on for about a year. The guy would call literally once a week. I'd say, what part of no do you not get? I'm not buying insurance. Stop calling me. Leave me alone. One day, it's pouring cats and dogs. My secretary, Mary, who used to be the secretary to Ray Kelly in his first stint as police commissioner, she was his secretary. And then she came to work for me. And there's a story as to how she got there, but I'll tell you that later. She says to me, you know that crazy guy from Vermont Life? He's here like a drowned rat in the hallway and he will not leave until he sees you. So I'm like, oh my God. I send him in. Older guy, about 60 years old. He has a rain hat on. He has slicker and he has this stupid trench coat like from London Fog. When I tell you, he's dripping wet. He walks in with a briefcase and he says, I just want to tell you you're one of the rudest people I've ever dealt with. I'm like, okay, here we go. We're going to get lectured now, right? So I'm like, maybe he's a screwball. He takes his briefcase and he puts it on my desk and pounds it, opens the briefcase out, takes out an envelope and says, I've been trying to reach you for this purpose. Here you go. Hands me an envelope, a letter, closes the briefcase, takes the briefcase, walks out and leaves. So I'm literally sitting there and Mary's like, what the hell was that? I don't know. I said, maybe I should open the letter. Open the letter, and there is a letter, and it says, 
you are the beneficiary of a $1 million life insurance policy from David Klein. Wow. We, have been, we have been trying to reach you for the last 12 months. Wow. And we, could, we couldn't send it in the mail, blah, 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 blah. And there's a check. Vermont Life Insurance Company, $1 million, made out to Dave L. I'm saying like, is this like a joke? And of course, I always had cash flow problems in those days, right? Because I spent all my money buying the company, right? There's never enough money to do anything else. I called the controller in, and the controller was Klein's guy, Mark Rosendahl, and he's like, I'm not surprised, but I can't believe it. I said, go deposit the check, make sure it's real. And of course, we deposited the check, and it was real. But that's the kind of guy Klein was. Because he knew that at some point I'd get in some trouble and he figured this is how I'm going to help bail him out. It's the, only regret, the only regret I have is I didn't buy his townhouse. He had a beautiful penthouse with a wraparound top floor deck. And I could have bought it for short money. And I didn't buy his 3,000 acre estate in Lake Placid, New York, because it was too far away. I didn't want to make the drive. And that was a steal that I should have bought and I didn't. There's Those are the only two things. There's always a real estate deal where you go, God damn it, I wish I would have gotten that, you know? You know, I have no regrets, though, because Klein did nothing but take care of me. And so that's the story. Besides David Klein, were there any books or kind of gurus that helped you during your journey? Like when you were building Dave L from, you know, I don't even want to say zero to a billion. I want to say like, you know, 50 to a billion. Like you, you started with such an amazing brand and you built that was there any was there, i know you're a voracious reader was there a self-help book a guru anything mm-hmm. that would be like i can implement this in my life a business book management anything I, i'm fascinated by this i was addicted and i'm still addicted to cnbc from the day they came on here and as soon as we cable tv became cable tv i had cable tvs in every office at davel and i would watch cnbc all day long and I would watch the Warren Buffetts of the world. I would watch the Jack Welchers of the world. I was addicted because all these people were also customers. And I listened to every word out of their mouth and I became a voracious investor. And I would literally spend a lot of time investing every day. I'm still doing it to this day. Right. And I basically took their advice on how to build businesses. Um, and I learned a lot of lessons from people by listening. I'm also a voracious reader. I've yeah. read everything. I don't like self-help books because okay. people write them for the purpose of making money on them. Right. But I like biographies and I like reading. I'll tell you what I was obsessed with. When I was a kid, when I was 12 years old, the Forbes 400 came out and I got a copy and I read every single person every single year and I would monitor where they were. I remember reading about Donald Stern from Hearts Mountain. Well, what was he famous for? It wasn't Hearts Mountain. He bought the other side of the Hudson River for 25 years, every piece of real estate on the water. They were dilapidated, broken down, warehouses, piers, all crap that was worthless for decades. Mm-hmm. And he had a vision that he would build a new city on the opposite end of Manhattan. And now look what's there. It's probably one of the most prolific developments in the history of the United States. And it has better views than Manhattan has because you have the view of Manhattan. And every morning, you take the boat. You get in the boat, you go across around Wall Street, bang, 10 minutes. Right. So I watched Leonard Stern's net worth go up. Donald Bren, who is the huge real estate developer in Orange County, he was buying tracts of land that nobody wanted. Well, that became Newport Beach. Wow. Right? Dana Point. 
I mean, yeah, think about it, right? Wow. So I would follow every year and see how they would do year over year. And then I would call them up and solicit them to make, make them my customer. Right. I remember once calling Sumner Redstone because he was from Boston and he right. owned my local movie drive-in theater. I found out he was living at the Pierre and at the Carlisle. He had an apartment at both. And I got his phone number at the Carlisle Hotel. I call him up one morning at nine in the morning because he's an early riser. Introduce myself. Say, I'm from Revere, where your father's first drive-in theater was. He starts laughing. I said, and I want you to use my chauffeured cars. And he said, I don't know how you got through. He goes, but good for you. You're persistent for sure. Right. He goes, here's the name of somebody you should call. Tell him I told you to call. And from that day on, we did business there for years and years and years. And his first wife, Phyllis, who's still living in her 90s, uh, I'm still very friendly with. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I would do. But I would call every one of the billionaires on the telephone and reach out. Well, then email came and it became a little bit different, right? Because you could use the internet to talk to people. But I used to always say to people, if you don't ask, no one can ever say no to you. So just ask. And I would ask everybody. I would read the Wall Street Journal cover to cover. And I used to look in all three columns and I would say, was Dave L involved in any of these columns today? And would say, yeah, we did a, a, a stock offering for IBM. We drove them. There's the story. And I would tell my staff, the bet is how many of these a day are we involved in? We'd circle them. Well, we were involved in this. We were involved in this. We were involved in this. And I'd say, now you know the importance of reading the Wall Street Journal. And people would look at me like, you know, he's crazy. He's obsessed. And I was obsessed. And then I got onto Barron's. Same thing. I read Barron's cover to cover. You know, and I'd read every word the analyst would say. So for me, I learned because I was in the television age. Um, and you could learn in real time and still watch interviews and still watch people that you respected. And you'd take and say, okay, why are they doing that? And how can that help me? What I always said was, if they're on TV, did I drive them? Because I'd be really pissed off at the sales department if I saw somebody on TV doing a live interview and they weren't in my car waiting out front. I would get crazy. And then, of course, I got to go on CNBC, which was like, you know, I was like a kid. I mean, I've been on every, every network and every channel, but right. nothing compared to CNBC for me which right. was a tiny, you know, tiny in comparison to being on ABC or something. But right. it was because it was CNBC. And I remember going to the studio and I met Mark Haynes, who was the, the, the first anchor, the most famous guy on CNBC. And I was like, you know, you know I've spent time with Barbara Streisand and the Pope. I mean, I'm, you know, we, we were in the celebrity business. You know that. I know that. We're both in that business. You know, celebrities don't do anything for me. But to meet Mark Haynes, right. I was like, it's Mark Haynes, right? And people are like, who's Mark Haynes? You don't know what you're talking about. And that to me was so important to me um, because that's where I really figured out these people were really smart. They made billions of dollars. How do I emulate that and do what they did? The, this is gold. This is absolute gold. Go ahead, Eric. And that's what, you, uh, that's, what you, that's what you copied. And that's not, not copied, but that's what you learned. You from. emulated the successful people. And Eric and I talk about that all the time, that success leaves clues. Like what Eric just said. And you want to be successful? You follow successful people. How has social media and like, I love that you were looking at, you know, Barron's in the Wall Street Journal. Are you still a paper guy or do you go on the internet? Do you go on social media? Like, have so you reinvented yourself for the so new age? It's a funny question because I'm a, I'm a true newspaper guy. I know all the presidents of all the newspapers. I've known them all for a long time. I've been very friendly with people in the media business. I, at one point, I would get seven newspapers a day delivered to my house. I live in the country. Uh, it's an interesting story. And every day, I would get seven papers a day. I'm now down to five because I fired the New York Times. 
even though they were my major clients, I knew the Salzburgers personally. Um, I got mad at them because they kept writing crazy stories I didn't like. So I finally said, I'm not getting New York Times anymore. And okay. I replaced it with the Financial Times, which is actually a, a phenomenal paper. Mm -hmm. So I still get five papers a day, but I'm on the internet all day long. I have every site. I'm on alerts for everything, right? So every day I'm looking at the alerts, I'm looking at the stories, and I'm a voracious trader. So I have managed money, and then I have Scott money. I had a bet a year ago in 2018 with my three stockbroken companies. I said, you know what? I'm tired of you guys. I said, you never take my ideas. I have to do them on my own at Charles Schwab. So here's a free plug for Charles Schwab because a goofball like me can run around and trade stocks on Charles Schwab. I said, I'm really pissed off. We're going we're gonna to have a contest. At the end of the year, there's four of us. The person that comes in last with average return gets fired. So the, you know, the Merrill Lynch Bank America guy was like mortified. I went to high school with them. He's like, are you crazy? The Morgan Stanley guy and the UBS guy, they're like, are you, are you going crazy? I said, nope, this is what we're going to do. So throughout the year, I am just like on fire. I'm right. running in like the low 30s, unheard of. I'm having the biggest year I've ever had. And I'm like beating them. They're all at 12%, 12%, 13%. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait. Somebody's going to get fired. And I'm going to get that money. I'm taking it back. And I'm going to manage it myself, right? And the other two are going to get in line. So December of 2018 hits, if you recall, there's a massive market correction. Yep. The last two weeks of the year, I am like shell-shocked. I don't have the right puts. I don't have protection. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm trying to fix my portfolio. So we have our meeting in January. And the three guys are like, well, here's my portfolio. I closed the year at 13%. I closed at 12%. I closed it like the other guy I think was, was 12%. There's two 12s and a 13. They said, Scott, where's your Schwab statement? I put the statement up. I'm negative like 8%. Oh my God. They are crying. Oh God. They said, well, I guess you understand why managed money matters. And that was the end of it. I've never done it again. I don't even bother them anymore. I just say, okay, I'm done. And so I'm still trading, but I don't tell them what I'm doing because they were smarter than me because they do it for a living. I thought I was smart and I'm it's, not that smart. Stick with it's, what you know. it's so interesting listening to this because like, were not stock people, right? Like our parents, my dad wouldn't read a newspaper. He read like the limo magazines and he loved gambling magazines and all that stuff. Yep. And my mom would read, you know, she's big and everything. But like our parents were into real estate and I don't know, you, you own properties, right? Like you own, mm -hmm. did, did Daydale own the buildings and everything? That's what our parents did is we, you know, we bought the buildings that we were in, in the cities that we were located in. And that, Do you know, know what I made the most money on? Time. Go ahead. I'm gonna tell you what I made the most money on. You're yeah. gonna fall off your chairs. Yeah. Dave L owned a number of FCC radio license frequencies. Oh my God. Okay. The land, I, owned but... them, I owned them in LA and New York. Wow. I can't tell you how many cell phone companies chased me for years because they needed a spectrum. Because they don't just add spectrum, they had to buy spectrum. When I finally sold those licenses, I sold them all to Nextel because they were the upstart going after the, the old companies. Like Verizon was from uh, New York Bell, AT&T. So there was a whole story there. I, that was like one of the greatest days of my career because it was free money because we were no longer using the technology. We all went on Nextel. And Nextel gave me free phones for my company for five years 
but they paid millions and millions of dollars for the Spectrum licenses. And my accounting firm was like, this has never been listed as an asset. Like, what is this? Um, and I'm like, well, I didn't know it was worth anything. It was a license. Who knew you could sell an FCC license? But you can. Oh and we made God. an incredible amount of money selling those licenses. I think it was in the late 80s, um, maybe early 90s. And it was unbelievable. And then I had free service for years on Nextel. So we had a couple of thousand Nextel phones. We didn't pay a dime. And then when that ran out, I tried to renew the deal. They said, yeah, no, you're done. They said, you've taken more money out of here than the investors. They said, get out of here. And I had to pay. But I mean, that was an incredible story because I never knew it was an asset. That was a hidden asset. Imagine. That's unbelievable. So um, I wanted to get a little bit to uh, modern day of what's going on with COVID-19 and with your experience now being the executive director of, uh, of the GBTA, right? Executive director, COO. I'm now the CEO as of Friday. There's a big announcement coming out. Right. They, uh, they've wow. never had a, a CEO title, but they changed and uh, have given me this huge title that comes with all kinds of things. And I'm stunned by it. I didn't know they were doing it. The board had a, a private meeting. Yeah, so yeah, the so title thing was kind of weird. So tell us, what is travel going to look like in the next six months to a year? I mean, look, every day I'm talking to all the C-suites of hotel, credit card, airlines constantly. I'm talking to the regulators in Brussels and D.C. We're on the White House calls every two days. We're on the CDC calls. You know, I get all the updates. At 1130 at night, I get a voluminous report from all, all lobbying firms. Um, it's very detailed. And I start at 5 in the morning every day with Europe. Uh, and I get on those calls. I don't think people realize how complicated this has become. Right. Shutting down the world is doable. You just basically say, we're not going to fly. We're not going to open our hotel. We're laying people off, furloughing people, whatever you want to call it. But it's shut down for a while. What nobody has really calculated is how complicated is it going to be to turn it back on? And yep. let me tell you something. I know a little bit more about the airlines than I ever want to know. Those planes that are sitting out in parking lots in the desert, they've had all the hydraulic fluids taken out, all the gas fuel taken out. Oh, they, have wow. to be they have to be recertified by the government. They've got to be tested, signed off. Any pilot that's gone over a certain amount of time without flying has to go back in a simulator and recertify. This is a monumental task. Wow. My first interview was with the president of Southwest Airlines in my industry forum I'm doing for CEOs. And he said to me, yeah, there's some complexity to this. So it's going to be a slow roll up back into business. The hotels did not get bailed out the way they should have in the package. We fought and right. tried, but there were some people in government who just didn't want to give corporations money. The airlines, it was like a utility. So we, that was an easier fight for us. And the travel managers, I mean, the TMCs, the, the travel agencies, because they were the plumbing, we were able to convince government to put them in the airline package. Mm -hmm. So they should be okay. They're not great, but they're better than where the hotels are. So I'm very worried about hotel and its revival because a lot of people that own hotels are not the brands. The brands don't own the hotels anymore. They're all management companies. Hotels are owned by REITs and real estate investors. Yeah, yeah. And our, if they uncle want, said, our uncle Kevin said, who's the CFO of BLS, he said the REITs are in real big trouble. And they're going to do different things with that real estate. They yeah. might say in New York City, for instance, the highest and best use for my real estate is condos. Right. Why do I want to be hotels? I need, I need cash back to pay all right. these bills off. 
So I think hotel is going to be complicated. So we're now working on a task force to bring all the travel segments together to say, what do we need from governments to reopen across the world? Here's the other problem no one's talking about. What are the rules going to be in Poland for you to fly to Poland? What are the rules right. going to be in Italy? There isn't one rule maker over there. What are the wow. rules going to be to go back to Singapore? Every country makes their own rules. So who's going to coordinate that so that it becomes smooth again? Because you've gotten completely lumpy. Everybody's doing their own thing. If you go to Spain, you have to quarantine before you get there for 14 days. Who's going to take that business trip? Nobody. So until there's a level of confidence for the actual business traveler, they're not getting on planes. Right. There's some predictions that we've seen that said leisure will come out first because people are so desperate to go on a vacation. So if you go to the Caribbean and you can get there on a three-hour flight from New York, you're going to get on a plane, go to the Caribbean with your kids, and you're going to try to take a vacation. Because number one, you haven't spent any money because you've been home. If you're laid off, you're not going to take the vacation. There's 26 million people laid off, which is horrifying. So there's going to be this displacement of who comes back and how they do that. The other thing is, do you wear a mask on a plane? No mask. Do you wear gloves? How's the TSA going to work? How are you going to socially distance TSA lines? You're going to have to leave seven hours before your flight to make your flight? You know, the TSA lines prior to COVID were out of control. Even FastPass was out of control. And I flew every week. No one has to give me a lecture on on how the airports work, because I know that better than anybody. I mean, right. What are you going to do? What are you doing in Dallas on a Friday morning? People will be up, they'll be in Maryland in line. So, I mean, how is that all going to come back together over a period of time? So what we worry about is a displacement right. factor, is how out of joint are all the different people that have to work together to make the system work. I say this all the time. There's four pillars of travel, the aviation sector, the hotel sector, the TMC sector, which is the plumbing that connects aviation hotel. And then you can't do it without ground transportation. What are you do when you land at LAX? There's no bus. There's no limo. There's no right. Uber. There's no taxi. You're going to walk right. with your bags to Beverly Hills to a meeting? That's right. ridiculous. There's no rent a car. How are you going to get there? So let me tell right. you something. Ground transportation was a huge focus for GBTA, not because I came from there, because right. if those four pillars aren't together, there's no recovery. And God, so we think we think... Good. If there's anything that we can do to help get, get, the, get out of the – I call this the dark ages. I mean, this is unprecedented what we're going through. If there's anything Eric and I can do to, as a representative of BLS and as a representative of you know, the – I think FedEx oh, came. Oh, no. The FedEx man is here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, it's, all right. it's all good. If there's anything that Eric and I can do to help with this – yeah, I mean, what you can do is make sure you stay healthy and you take out the SBA help that you can get. Make sure you take care of your, of your affiliates if you can because all cash is dried up. We get that. But if there's no affiliates to go to, how are you going to run your business? Uh, we never stopped paying the affiliates. I mean, we right? slowed it down. We slowed it down, but we never stopped paying them because once this comes back, we need the affiliates to pick up the clients. There's no question. I don't think people understand that that 10 car operator in St. Louis it's, it's as important as the 500 car operator in LA. 100%. Because it doesn't work. The system will break down. And, yeah. I, and I don't think people get that. So right. I, am, I talk to the NLA all the time. Remember, I founded the NLA. I'm very involved. They just gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award for the second time uh, in Vegas. Well deserved. Well deserved. I, I love them. And I give them advice. And I try to tell them, guys, you've got to save the operators. So give them the SBA stuff. Help them get the loans. 
help them work at their state level. Because if you don't, they won't make it. Then what are you going to do? Then what do you do? I mean, I don't know. But you gotta, you got to find a way to survive, my friend. You know, I, I, get, I get upset when I'm, when I'm online and, um, you know, people say, you know, Zoom is the future. We don't have to do meetings. We can make deals. You know, like, yeah, like, this is great. You know, like, you know, we, this, this, is, this is an awesome situation that we're able to connect with each other. And then, you know, I just commented yesterday on LinkedIn. Some guy was like, I can just do all my deals from Zoom. He's like, I don't have to worry about traveling anymore. I'm like, and how well is the economy doing that we can't travel? I'm like, the correlation is there. If there's no business travel, there is no economy. Let me tell you something about Zoom. So GBTA has run a survey for 10 years on the value of face-to-face meetings. In 10 years, that number is still at 62%, never left 62%. The closest second thing is conference calls and video conferencing at 11%. When, that, when this is over in a year, that number is going to go into the 70s. It's not going to go down. It's going to go up. I'm on these calls every day. Nobody wants to be on them. Everybody wants interaction. People are fed up with Zoom. The other thing is, the Chinese are listening right now. It's not secure. But I don't really care. What do you care? So the Chinese are listening. They open a limo company. Good for them. It's like (laughs) nobody gets it. And I agree with you, Eric. If you're the one out there doing the face-to-face, you're going to have the relationship. The other guy on Zoom, there's no relationship on Zoom. It's It's too impersonal. And nobody likes doing it. People are fed up. I'm on Zoom eight hours, 10 hours. I do cocktail parties at night, 15 hour days on Zoom. Done. Done. Scott, do you sleep? That's a serious no. question. I, I ended 1130 with my lobbyists and I started like, at 5 a.m. You're like sparkling. But like, Every when day. do you go to bed? I don't sleep and I'm not a napper uh, because Oscar doesn't like to nap. He's a Belgian Malinois. They're a little bit of a quirky breed. And okay. so... There's no napping allowed. And so literally, I am up from 5 to 11.30 every day. God bless my wife. She's been doing the cooking. I do some cooking, but she's been really helpful to me. She cooks me great dinners. If I, go, if I get fish, she'll make fish. You know, whatever I want, she'll do uh, to help me because she sees me and she's like, I never understood what you did for a living. My wife's not into any of this. She's right. like, she goes, how can you talk for 15 hours a day? She goes, who listens to you? Like she always says, are they hanging themselves on the other end? Like, do you ever shut up? So she gets a kick out of it. She's had enough of me. We're both ready. But, you know, I live in a great place and I have plenty of room to take walks. You know, I have acres and acres and I get to get out and I get to get into the sun and take Oscar out and we go out and we hang out. But most of the time I'm on the phone when I'm doing it. There's no more boundaries in a pandemic. Like I don't even realize today's Sunday. Right? So normally I'd be in church. I'm a hardcore Catholic. I haven't gone to church in, you know, almost 45 days. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell now. But I guess I have an excuse because there is no church because you can't go to a church. But the point I'm trying to make is that I'll get as many calls today as I will on Monday because everybody's forgotten boundaries because everybody's just home. And you can, the greatest part about a pandemic is I can get a phone call into anybody in the world I want and they'll take my phone call because... No. Everybody's home. God, I, I don't want to brag, but we've won like nine RFPs because all the procurement people have time for us now. No question. And they're all my customers in GBTA. I see them all. You're yeah. right. Yeah.
Like, yes, and they all have time, and and they all get on calls. Go ahead, say it again, Eric. No, no, you were you were frozen for a second, but yeah, no, you know, definitely there is always a silver lining with with anything, and you have to look for it, and you have to find it, and you have to you have to embrace it. Um, I think I think we're gonna all gonna come out on the other side better, stronger, leaner, bigger, stronger, leaner. And well, how how are you guys surviving from a company perspective? I know a little bit about your business. I mean. It's got to be a little bit scary when you both wake up in the morning and you say, um, we're at 5%. Yeah, no, you know, no about we, it. Own a th- we own a thousand cars and we have 2,000 drivers and nobody's home. Like, like, I mean, I watch you, your podcast and you're kind of funny and you guys are taking it in stride. You're young guys. Thank and you. I assume that, you know, mom and dad left you in good shape. You no, know, I, I know your parents and, you know, you're probably going to be okay. But it's got to be absolutely nauseating when you see the numbers. I mean, you got to. I mean, Michael, I didn't get to see you in Vegas because you were having a health problem and I missed you. I hung out with your brother and your mother and the team. Um, but I'm like, what are they thinking? Because you never, you never lead on that you're upset, which I love because you're both so positive. Well, and by the way, and you're both very funny. So sometimes you'll write something that just hits me and I'll start laughing and I'll make a comment. But I don't know if people appreciate it, but you just hit it at the right time. And I'll say, oh, my God, those kids are crazy. And I'll write something back. I get a big kick out of it. But you being positive is having an impact on other operators. I know it is as we talk about it. Yeah, no, 100%. Listen, our parents' philosophy from day one was pretty simple. First, we don't have any investors. It's, it was always 100% family owned. I know. I tried to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> they were smart. They didn't do it. Good for them. Yep. It would have ended bad <laughs> in a and, pandemic. Uh, Who it knew? Was, <laughs> it was pre- it's pretty simple. Um, our business plan, and the business plan was what Michael said earlier. We always bought our properties. And um, th- those properties have bailed us out through every lawsuit, through every recession, through every stock market crash, through writer strikes, um, you know, and now through this pandemic. And, and that's what we're using to get us through to, to the other side of 2020. What if people don't pay the rent? What do you do? We own it. We own the buildings. They're our building. We don't rent. We, it's our building. We own the building in Astoria. We own the building in Vegas. Okay. Good you for know. you. Yeah, so that, that was our mom and dad's fault. I mean, do you know who I talked to last night is Charlie Hawkey. You know, Charlie and I know each other for decades. And we love Charlie. We you know, him. Charlie's Charlie, right? He's got his own shit. We love him. And I've known him forever. Yeah. And so he calls me for advice all the time. And he'll say, Scotty, I need some serious advice. You're the smartest guy I know. Help me out. What's going to happen here? And Charlie said to me, Scott, you know, I've lived in Vegas for a long time. He said, I have never seen anything like this in Las Vegas. He said, Vegas never stops. And Vegas has stopped. I said, Charlie, do they even have a front door key for the Venetian? Like, does Sheldon Adelson have like a big key and he opens the door? I said, how does that work? He goes, they've never closed ever. So no one knows like what is going to happen. Remember, they got to keep the buildings running. Air conditioning systems have to keep running. All the electric. I mean, you don't want the hotel to burn down. You don't want crazy people breaking into the hotel. Everything is at zero. How is that in Las Vegas, Nevada? I got to tell you, it was one of the worst days of my life personally because Vegas was my baby. It was my MBA project. I opened Vegas coinciding with getting my MBA. And, you know, we had to close BLS Las Vegas because the strip is closed because there's no business. The hotels aren't open. 
Um, but throughout all this, and this is kind of like linking up with what we said before about being funny and about being positive. And yeah, we're kind of on the young side, but you know, I feel that you have two reactions to everything, a positive reaction and a negative reaction. And it's, it takes the same amount of energy for that to give that positive reaction or the negative reaction. You know, we're scared. We're not happy the way things are, but we are looking at this, that this is a master reset for our industry, for the travel industry, that everything is starting from zero. Um, the strongest will survive. All of those, you know, sayings that are going to get us through this. Oh, did I freeze again? No, you're okay. Okay. Um, all these sayings that are getting us through this. I wrote this book called Just Ask the Universe. I believe in self-help. And, and, and I got to tell you, it's for sale for 99 cents on Amazon because I don't give a shit about the money. I don't care about the money. I want to help people. You know, I'm not selling it for $14.90. I don't care. I want to help people because I, the stuff that's worked for Eric and me and our family, I want to spread for, throughout the world. So we're applying those principles now of saying affirmations, of writing down your goals. And, you know, it's, it's, it's working because it's so easy to get depressed today. It's so easy to say, my, my God, it's over. The, the industry as we know it is finished. You know, I don't want to sound negative, but I don't see how we're getting out of this. I'm scared about that. Well, but then I say to myself, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to get through it. We're, you know, we're going to bring the people back. We're going to hire everyone. Business is going to travel again. What I think is going to happen is I think it's going to, it's going to fall on the companies to innovate and those who innovate and those who are going to make their guests feel comfortable are going to get their, their people are going to start traveling again. You know, I implore every single operator out there do everything that you can to make your clients feel comfortable. Same goes with hotels, same goes with airlines. We have to go out of our way to innovate and, because we're not going to be able to rely on anyone else but ourselves. The hardest group is going to be the bus people. They're going to have a really hard time. Because oh, yeah. yeah. unlike an airplane, there's no circulating air in a bus. Right? And imagine spending $600,000 for a piece of equipment. And those buses, I know guys with 200 buses, they haven't moved in 45 days. Yep. Yep. That is a problem. Do the math on that. You get yeah. $60 million in inventory and you're not bringing in one penny. Yeah. By the way, the banks don't want the buses. What are they going to do with them? They're going to repossess them and do what? Who are they going to sell them to? Nobody. So I feel for the bus industry and I've talked to them a couple of times and I just think they got to get clever and how do you make the passengers comfortable if they can ride on a bus and not end up with a plague. And I think that's going to be tough. I, agree. Uh, I think chauffeured car will do fine yep. because it's a one-on-one -on -one interaction. So you can ask to make sure the driver doesn't have a fever. You know what I mean? And at least he's okay. And he, maybe he has a test. And maybe he has a piece of paper. Maybe he has a mask. I mean, there's things you could do in chauffeured car, but a bus with 45 people in it, man, how do you do it? I, I, I worry about them because they're probably the most important link in the ground mix because they move so many more people exponentially. Yep. How do you move 100,000 people if you don't have any buses? Right. It's a problem. And I don't know what, what's going to happen, but I hope that they're thinking it through because I'm not in that world anymore. Um, but I think they're the biggest issue from my perspective. They're going to they're gonna innovate. We spoke to a meeting planner on Friday and uh, you know, their initial rollout is going to be they're going to push chauffeur car more. But the plan is um, that bus companies, they're going to they're gonna put up dividers and they're, they're, they're going to sit people far apart. Um, yeah. So on 
passenger bus, they can move 20 people instead of 50 people. Well, and by, by do the math on that, right? So you build your whole business model on moving 45. It's a loser, it's, right? It's a loser. It's a, it's a, it's a, so, so Michael O'Leary, the president of Ryanair, made a big statement last week in London. Yep. And he said, I'm not taking out my middle seats unless the government pays me for every middle seat because I'm not going to lose money every flight. I don't give a damn. The whole thing's ridiculous. We're going to fly our planes and we fly our planes. And then I got the phone. My phone started ringing with quotes from the media. And I yeah. said to the Financial Times, I said, no quote, no one, nothing to do with this. Like, yeah. you know, horrible, you know, science has to dictate, not him. But I, I didn't want to be quoted saying anything negative. So I said, nope, no comment, no comment, no comment. And that's the kind of stuff that people aren't thinking about. Look, Michael O'Leary's wrong because you got to do what science tells you to do. But he's not wrong on the financial model side. If government's going to dictate you can't use your middle seat, then you're going to have to charge twice as much to every other passenger to pay for the middle seat because the economics don't change. The fuel still costs A, the labor costs B, the plane costs C, the gate slot costs D. None of those changes are going down. So how do you pay for the flight? And I don't think the public's thought this through, right? Same thing in hotels. If you've got a ballroom that holds 5,000, but you would normally have 5,000, now you can only have 2,500. Where do the other 2,500 people go? Right, right. Like, we're in the middle of that with GBTA right now for our own convention. Yeah, that was, I was going to ask you that. Like, what are you, you going to do for Denver? Is this even going to be happening? Yeah, we're rewriting the book. We're writing the book on how to do a safe meeting right now. GBTA is partnering uh, uh, to do a deal to start to recommend to government what the standards should be based on CDC, based on the Colorado Health Department, based on a whole bunch of people. But we have to have convention. We're having it in November. We moved the date uh, because we were, we're contractually obligated to people and we're, we're doing it. What will it look like? We don't know until we get to November. If there's no virus anywhere in the United States, it could be very different than it is today. But you'd have to see an elimination of all the virus. And who knows what that is? Only science will dictate this, this issue. Right. Um, governments don't get to dictate. It's science, right? right. So we're, t- we're making a big bet with our global sponsors that this is going to happen. The buyers wanted the, the, the convention. Huge, huge, huge polling on this. So we said, okay. We had a fight with Colorado to get the dates. It wasn't easy to get out of our July dates. You have no idea. Complicated. Um, really? It took us about 30 days to fight with 60 hotels in the room block. Remember, everybody has their own contract. We finally got it all figured out, and we're moving forward, and that's how it's going to be. Now, if there's any virus, then we'll postpone. Because right. you're not going to do an event and have people get sick at your event. Right. You know, we saw how that worked out for Biogen, because they, right. they, they, they created 92 cases in Massachusetts, according to the Boston Globe. One meeting. So, I this, mean, we don't want to be that. This coincides with what, I, what you said before about Vegas, you know, like – I, I wrote this LinkedIn post. Eric and I are very big on LinkedIn. We feel it's, it's, it's such a great window to the travel world. That, that's our business. I didn't know what LinkedIn was a year ago. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I just joined a year ago, by the way. Yeah. I'm with you, brother. Same thing. Same yeah. thing. We, we were here on social media. LinkedIn is an extraordinary tool. Extraordinary. Tell me. Yeah. I, will, I said this post a few days ago, about a few weeks ago, and I said, when all this is over, we have to inject Vegas and Orlando, right? The big tourist destinations. Vegas and Orlando has to have an injection of, of people coming in, and I will be the front, first one online to go down to Disney. I will be the first one online to get to Vegas and, and inject that economy because they need it. GBTA, are you ever going to do it in Vegas or Orlando, like, with, like sooner than later to, to inject? We're in, we're, we're in Orlando next July. Wow, okay. Okay. Uh, 
And, you know, we, we, when you plan these conventions, they're out five years because right. you have to take over the whole city. And so it's right. a huge negotiation. It's very complex stuff. And you got these big contracts. So we go Denver, Orlando, San Diego um, is, the, is the next three years, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. No, but like with Vegas, like I can't, I couldn't go because I had the flu and I was dealing with vertigo from the flu. Yeah. Your that. brother and mother told me. I felt bad, Michael. No, I, but, I, the, a Vegas trip, I'm the first one there. The, this, I couldn't get on a plane because the, it still is bad. I'm like three months into this vertigo shit. And I just, we, we, we could have played a little bit of blackjack when no one was looking at us. I wish. I'm a, I'm a dice player, but I love blackjack. I know. You guys are big, big dice players. My we father's a dice player. He's 91. He thought he was going to go to a casino last week, by the way. Yeah, no. I said, yeah, Dad, the Indians are closed. There's nobody home. <laughs> so there's no casinos in Connecticut. And my father was mortified. There's nothing wrong. Why don't I go to the casino? I said, no, you're not. Like, my father's crazy. It's like, no, yeah. Dad, there's no going anywhere. There is nothing more I want than to go to a casino with my family or to go down to Disney with my wife and kids. Like, there's nothing more that I want yep. to. And we're, and we're on vacation in our home right now. Like, I'm... You know, like we're not going anywhere, but I still want to give to Disney. I still want to give to MGM Resort. Like I want to give to these people because we got to get, we got to prop them up again. And it's because of people like us, the three of us that are going to be able to do that. You know, it's, it's on, it's on the public to, to, to stay safe and to, and to be smart so we can get, so we can get the world moving again. You know, I, 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 we're pushing it every day. I mean, you see, you hear our narrative, you yep. know, we're very positive. We're hoping that there'll be some semblance of control. Look, there's going to be a therapeutic fix to the virus that will get you better, and then there'll be a vaccine sooner or later. So knowing that we're Americans and we always solve problems, I'm pretty confident there's so much money going into this area that something's going to happen to solve this. This is a temporary situation. It's not permanent. And we're not going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives. I think that's another crock of nonsense. It's like when this is over, it's over. People are taking the mask off. I right. went food shopping at seven o'clock yesterday morning and I go to a little grocery store. I don't go to the big stores because that's where all the problems break out. I go to a specialty store that I've gone to for years, a little bit more expensive, but I don't care. I, you know, I walk in with my mask. I got my, my, my hand sanitizing wipes and everything. I open every door with a wipe, right? I load up my thing. I don't go near anybody. I go up and down the aisles, piles and piles and piles. And I get to the counter and I check out and I get out as quickly as I can. Because my wife has lupus. And I don't want her going out because she's had some immune problems. Sure. And so it's the one thing I do every week. And I worry when I'm doing it. And then I come home and I, I wash my shoes because they say the virus is on the floor. And I wipe my shoes down and do all that. And then I depend on stuff getting delivered every day. The FedEx guy comes every day. I've finally figured out how to corner the market on shaman. It took me a couple of weeks. But I found all the shaman supplies. And I, I get three orders a day, one from Walmart if you go on late at night, and it's only good for about an hour, then it's gone. One from Target, a little bit more infrequent, but the place I found that always has it when I want it, only, only buy one at a time, is Kroger. But Kroger's not good at IT. So you can beat the Kroger system because you can do multiple orders in a day and they don't catch you. So some days the FedEx guy comes three different times with the same Kroger package of one six-pack of Shaman. So of course my wife's like, are you accumulating shaman? I said, yeah, we're going to sell it later. We're going to have a big sale. The only people in the neighborhood are going to have shaman. So I have like, you know, enough shaman until 2037 in my house right now. But every day the FedEx guy comes and Oscar yells at him and it's, it's my shaman delivery. I don't have to look at it. You're very, so, Scott. You're very, well, very funny. Well, else? you've got to figure it out, right? So I'm going to corner the market and shaman, just like those brothers, the Hunt brothers did with Silva. 
I'm going to corner the shaman market. It's going to go through the roof and I'm going to cash out. Scott, this is my last question. When, oh, when, we have to end? I mean, end? I could do this all day. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. I could do okay. this all day. I am fascinated <laughs> by your stories. And Eric, when you caption this, it's got to be stories with Scott. I mean, like campfire <laughs> stories with Scott. I hey, great, great, hey, great title. like that. Right? That's, stories that's with I was thinking about yeah, I'm going to do stories with Scott Salambrino. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this is just this is, this is fascinating. When, when the phone calls die down, when everything comes down, do you watch movies? Is there anything you're watching now that you're like, I'm taking yep. a, I'm going to kick back and watch Ozark. Like, what, what, yep. what, what are you doing to like give Scott time sometimes? So I'm watching my beautiful friend, the Italian piece that was on HBO Max. Okay. Um, um, it's probably because I'm Italian. It's a very interesting period piece about the life of these two girls. Yeah, there's subtitles, a little bit hard. You can't do, watch it late at night because you're falling asleep. I'm watching Babylon Berlin. Uh, I'm, I'm into a lot of stuff in Germany. I spend a lot of time in Germany, lots of friends in Germany. Babylon, Babylon Berlin on Netflix. Netflix is a period piece. It's excellent. Okay. I've watched three seasons. Uh, I'm watching still Homeland. I have to go at their pace, though. You know how Showtime is. It's one a week, so that's not fun. But I'm trying to watch the wrap-up of Homeland and hope it all works out well for Saul, because I like Saul. Um, I do watch a lot of TV because I was in the entertainment business like you guys. So when you go to dinner with people in LA and New York and entertainment, you got to know every program, every TV program. Yep. I don't watch a lot of network TV anymore because I just think that TV has moved and it's shifted. So, you know, you, you have your Amazon, you have your Apple and you have Netflix and there's lots of content. And now Disney will ultimately take over everything. But remember, there's no production. I don't have to tell you guys because you know production. That's, production, that's the bullet in the head for us. People that's, don't know this. The yeah. public has no clue. Yeah. So every program is now delayed by six months. People are going to freak out when they figure that it out. Was, that was the, we always said, BLS's mantra was, as long as they're making movies and TV shows, we're going to be okay. Right? No question. And now it's like, okay, they're not mm -hmm. making movies or TV shows. You know, like that's, that was, that was, this is brutal for us. You know, that that's. Yeah, it's a problem. I watched, I watch it closely. I own a lot of media stocks. I mean, my Viacom stock has been crushed, crushed. I mean, AMC crushed, um, you know, Disney now crushed. I mean, you yes. know, I, I was a huge investor in media companies because I lived in that world for so many years yep. and they've all been beat to a pulp. I never bought Netflix. I didn't like the multiple. I thought it was crazy. And Netflix is off the wall. Um, I got to tell you, look into the casino stocks. I know they're oh, not no, open. no. You don't have I to tell me. I bought so, Win and MGM at the, at the, at this the bottom of the V. Is this legal? Yeah, it's legal. We can talk about stocks. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. not breaking any rules. So I bought Win at $35 a share. Yep. <laughs> but I, I sold Win last time at $198 a share. Yeah. Win is a trading stock phenomenon, right? Yes. That stock runs in a channel. And you just got to catch the channels, right? So I'm not a big short seller. But every once in a while, I'll get a little bit bold and I'll short something. I've never shot now because it's way beyond my capability. But right. I shorted win at like 170. It went to 94. Then I bought it back and I bought it long and it went back up to 140. And then it collapsed. It went to $35. So it gets to $35. Remember, they opened a win casino in Boston yep. one mile from my old office. So I'm well aware. So I said, look, the Chinese are going to reopen Macau. Yep. That's one of their biggest tax sources in China, right? They'll go there if they're dying or not dying. They'll take the chance. When they reopen Macau, 
that stock now is 70, would have closed $74 on Friday, $75. And I haven't sold a share yet. So that's a double already. I say it gets back to 100. Then you got to kind of pay attention. Is Vegas open? What what does the debt look like? Do they restructure the debt? Um, I don't like the fact that that Steve Wynn's wife is not talking to the CEO a bit. There's some stress still on the board. Uh, I know a little bit there. And so I'm kind of paying attention. But right now, it's one of my favorite trading stocks. Yes. Yes. And, and, and you know, and I'd, I'd watch it, Michael, because that runs in a straight channel all the time. Yep. Yep. Eric and I bought win um, maybe a day or two after it went public. Yep. And we kept it. It was $12 a share, if I remember correctly. It was $12 Got a share. Got up to $198, but Steve um, was still there. Yes. Then when Steve left, all hell broke loose. Yes, that's exactly right. That's and exactly. by the way, they run phenomenal casinos. They're to beautiful facilities. Uh, I have one in my own hometown. They spent $2.5 billion on that Boston project. We're big fans of the win. We really yeah, are. I am. T- I got a red card. I got my red card. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one, hello. Thing add, one thing I want to add to this conversation, Scott, you're such an interesting guy. Whatever content you're making for online, for LinkedIn, for Instagram, for Facebook, 10 times it. 10 times it, you should be everywhere, all day, all night, posting content, posting clips, saying your story, because you, you're in such a position now to help the travel industry. And the more you bring to the limelight, you have, you're, you have a platform to do it. It's pretty incredible because, you know, on LinkedIn, I get to see the views, right? Yep. I did a LinkedIn post two weeks ago. I had 31,000 views in three days. Yep. Oh, listen, I've, I've, I've never been on LinkedIn in my life. I'm brand new to all this. And you start to realize people are listening. And you've got to hear the detail in the messages. When I told one of the CEOs about my grandson being born in March, I had hundreds of messages from people saying, congratulations on your grandchild. I wasn't even thinking about it in the, in the broadcast. wasn't paying attention. So I agree with you. The power of LinkedIn is something I never thought I'd ever understand. Yep. Now I'm kind of addicted and I say happy birthday to people, congratulations to people, because people appreciate somebody paying attention, right? I love when, I, I love when people say things. I just had my one-year work anniversary. Well, I didn't know LinkedIn was going to post it. I don't know how it works. All of a sudden, yesterday, I've been inundated with people sending me comments about my one-year one anniversary. And now you appreciate I call each one of them. I'm like, thank you for thinking of me. And people are like, no, no, we see it on LinkedIn. So I, I think it's a phenomenal platform. That's why I own Microsoft, Microsoft stock, by the way. Mm-hmm. Big Microsoft shareholder. Hello. Um, and I love the platform for that reason. And that's why I think your guy, you guys and your positive message is helping a lot of people who are having a hard time. I'll give you one anecdotal story before we leave. So I go to these Korean family cleaners, clothes cleaners, for years. I'm very close to the wife and the sons. And they close them down. In Massachusetts, we're on double lockdown. We're, we're a really big hot spot up here. It's gone crazy. So they haven't operated in 30 days. Now, I used to argue with son, that's the woman's name. Every time I'd go, I'd say, son, why are you not collecting the money when people bring the clothes in? So all those clothes are money to you. And if people don't come in to pick them up, you don't get any money. So you already paid to clean them, paid to store them. And the people haven't paid. You've got to change your business model. And she'd speak broken. She'd say, yeah, but people won't come. And you're crazy. I'm not, I can't do that. I'd say, you need to change your business model. Just say the rules have changed. When you drop off the clothes, you've got to pay in advance of not cleaning your clothes. Well, she wouldn't do it. She calls me on the phone on Friday. I'm in the middle of a huge meeting 
I pick up the phone. I said, son, what's the matter? She said, we got special permission to open for one day Saturday. Come at 10 o'clock. So I have, you can imagine what I have for clothes. I'm on doing podcasts every day. I wear something different every day. I get all my clothes. I get the dog, go in the car. I go to the place. There's not a soul there. She's standing there. She put a glass window up. Yep. She's got a mask, a hat, and gloves. And she says, I'm so sorry. I said, son, is anybody coming to pick up their clothes? She says, no. I said, you got to change the model. I prepaid a bunch of money to her. And she's asked me to write the checks to her personally. Don't, I don't know what the deal is. I was happy to do it, right? And I'm happy to give her the money because I don't want her to go out of business, right? And I literally put a bunch of clothes in and I said, hey, I'm going to give you extra money. Apply it later. We need the money. Just keep the money. But just clean my clothes. And she was all teary-eyed. And she said, nobody does this. I right. said, well, I do it. But you got to promise me, son, that when this pandemic is over, you're changing your business model. People pay when they drop the clothes, not when they pick them up. Because why should you expend all the money like a bank and then they don't come pick up the clothes for three months? So that's a stupid business. And so I was trying to help her. And she was so appreciative. So now she can only open every Saturday for six hours. So I'll get the clothes next Saturday. She's got enough stuff there. Half my wardrobe. I mean, if she ever goes out of business, I'll be screwed. I'll be naked. I mean, you know, she's got all my clothes. <laughs> Just She's great. You know, you can, you can go to that one shop and you can reach one person. When you go on LinkedIn, you can reach 31,000 people. I have corporate travel managers who call me. Some of the biggest corporations called the airlines and said, you owe us $2 million in airline credits and certificates. Convert them. We don't want the money. You need the money more than we do. We want you to stay in business. I have a major global company that called individual hotels that are situated near their warehouses. And they're hiring people and they have no place to do the interviews. They prepaid them for a year. So the hotels would not go out of business. You have no idea of the acts of kindness that are coming out of corporate America to other people on the supplier side to guarantee that people won't go away. Yep. And I'm promoting it every time I can. Now with the public companies, you can't really talk about it because they don't want people to know because they have shareholders and all this. And so I would love to name some of these companies but they're all who's who companies and they are doing the kindest acts you could ever think of because travel is a family. Everybody loves each other in travel. We're the most adventurous people in the world yep. and we love interaction with humans. Yep. And this is the best part about GBTA is I get to sit and help build this ecosystem of be nice and be kind. It's a disaster. Don't take advantage of people. And that's my message to people. Be nice. Amazing, Scott. Scott, thank you for coming on. Scott, we love you guys. We, it's Sunday morning. I, I, I can't believe we're doing this. This is like I great. I know. I can't tell you how much fun I had. I am so happy um, that Eric and I ha have you as a mentor. And oh, come on. No, it's the truth. It's the truth. We, you know, we are, we're so happy that um, we could talk. Um, you know, you're, you're the voice of, of us and, you know, Eric and I are trying to create our own voice on LinkedIn and YouTube and it's, it's been working. It's been, it's been amazing. And, um, anytime that you want to come back on Oak and Bros podcast, it's not, even I, a I, I say hi to all my friends in the limo world, all the board of directors of the NLA, uh, my friends in the big companies, David Salinger, Cheryl Berkman, uh, the Maku brothers hang in there, everybody. Cause I know you got them as all as an audience. You're all going to be okay, and GBTA is here for all of you. We're going to help try to make this industry take off and get back to normal. And to you boys, first of all, keep doing what you're doing. 
Don't give up the fight. And most importantly, please, when you talk to your mother, send her my deepest and warmest regards. Phyllis is unbelievable. And now she's a world-renowned author on top of it all. So I want to get her autograph. By the way, you guys gave me so many books. I have all the books. You uh, guys are we, great. Before we end this, when are you going to write your memoir? When are you going to okay. write this? Well, I'm it's serious. Funny, it's funny you say that. I was supposed to write the memoir with Casey Sherman, uh, who does all the movies of Ben Affleck. And he's yeah, a, yeah. a guy I've known. And Casey was going to ghost write for me. And then I took the GBTA job. Who has time to write a memoir? You can do it. I, Come on. I, I want to do the movie and be on HBO Max. What do you think? I, you know the, what? I the Scotty Chronicles. How fun want, would that be? I want to tell you something real quick. I don't want to digress too much. But on Tuesday, I have a conference call with this award-winning screenwriter um, who's going to be hopefully adapting my book, Monsterland. Um, to How the, great is that? Oh, my God. It's the dream. It's the absolute dream. But, but you've got to do me one favor. If yeah. you make it to a big premiere, you I better hope, invite yeah. me, okay? Oh, because first of all, I'm fun, and you want to have fun guys out there with you. And then if you get, if you get to any award shows, you've got to find a way. I'll go as your mother's date, but I've got to get to go to the award show because I'm so proud of all of you and what you've done in a family business. And nothing can replace family business. And that's what you guys are. So best wishes to everybody in the BLS family. Best wishes to your mother. And it was great to hang out today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody. Like, subscribe. And Scott, where can everybody find you? Give, give a shout out to, you know, you're on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn um, at GBTA.org or ssolombrino at GBTA.org. Everybody knows how to find me. I'm pretty easy to find. But link in with me if you want to have some fun because I have some fun conversations. And I look forward to seeing everybody. And please stay safe, stay healthy, and business is coming back. Be confident. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Thank guys. You so Talk to you soon. Everyone. Take care.